You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. Gosh, I see some new faces I haven't seen in a while. Exactly. By the way, ma'am, I know you're accustomed to going to church in your pajamas, but it's not appropriate. Who? Who are we talking to? Would one of the deacons drag this woman out? Yes. Oh, we don't have deacons. We don't have deacons. Okay, I'm sorry. So. Oh, well. Never mind. It's going to take a while for people to get into the flow of Ah. how you dress for church. You we know, don't really have a dress code, but you do you need to wear some clothes. You know, we were, though, I mean, if you think about it, we kind of went against suit and tie church back when that was a thing, but that's not really a thing anymore, normal clothes. So maybe our new rebellion is pajamas. Like, pajamas. We just wear pajamas we just, to church. And since they're, you know, in some states they restrict the amount of people that can come if it's church, right. we can call it a pajama party. Pajama maybe, party. Look. I'm just saying, every hey, now and again, a blind squirrel finds a nut, right? And if we I think are, this was one of those moments. We, if we're not anything, we're at least creative, aren't uh, we? Unbelievable. At least it looks good on paper. <laughs> uh, we're really excited about starting back two services in children's ministry during the second hour next week. And uh, it's going to, we're going to continue to have the space between rows so that there's no one sitting directly behind you. We're going to continue the temperature check and, and mask and all we want to do as much as we can to make everybody feel uh, comfortable coming in. And I think that going to two, how many of you would, if when the second service starts, will actually go to the second service? Are you mostly first service attenders or some of you will go? Okay. How many of you online who have kids that you don't want to bring to church? Raise your hand so we Raise, can see. Comment. <laughs> Drop a comment in the comment section. I'm curious to know how many of you are missing. Oh, goodness gracious. Anyway, uh, 2021. Here it is. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We always kind of look at that New Year's thing as uh, some kind of like magical demarcation yeah. Yeah. line. Yeah. And it doesn't always work, does it? No. Nope. In fact, the series that we're beginning this morning is really kind of about that, about that because there is really no artificial thing that can happen that's going to make things different for us, particularly when the problem is within us. Yeah. We're going to do a ser- series of messages over the next five or six weeks, at least five of these weeks, we're going to be in one chapter in the Bible. You're going to get to know Exodus chapter 3 very, very well. And so if you want to, you can turn to Exodus, go to Matthew and hang a left and go almost as far as you can to the next to the last turnoff and you will be at the book of Exodus. But we're going to be talking about personal identity. And it's an interesting, interesting topic because the question who am I, is one of those classical, philosophical, existential questions. Who am I? In fact, some of us even wear an ID bracelet in case we forget who we are. I think that's, that's what it's for, isn't it? Yep. When you get over 65, you start wearing an ID bracelet in yep. case you forget who you are, right. and people ask you your name. But modern technology has created some real problems, hasn't it? I mean, identity theft has always been a problem, but but modern technology has created some interesting problems with that. It's made actually identity theft a huge problem. Well, what is identity theft? Well, it's when some folks don't like who they are, and so they just want to be you. Yep. That's really not it, is it? Yep. They want to have the stuff that they can get by stealing your identity. 
But it has become a huge, huge problem. And so some people, actually, whether they steal your identity or not, they really don't want to be who they are. And other people, at times, don't even know who they are. This whole issue of identity theft and lack of ability to identify like that correctly costs billions and billions of dollars. The identity crisis issue is also a huge problem. There are two times in life, and I've been through both of them. Some would say that I'm probably still in the second one, maybe. <laughs> well, I actually haven't been through the second one yet. Mm, no. Uh, two times in life that we typically struggle with in an identity crisis is that what they call the midlife. You know, a midlife can can start at 21, depending on who the individual is, right? But midlife is that time, you know, when the guy gets a Corvette and the, the lady gets some cosmetic surgery or, or whatever. Or you nose, know, a nose ring. Or a nose ring or whatever. <laughs> so it can start at age 35. But, but that identity crisis in midlife is you start looking at your life and you realize, you know, there's more life behind me than there is probably in front of me and begin to ask the question, who am I and do I really even matter? And of course, the other time when it is really probably more prone is when you retire, particularly if you have really closely identified your identity or who you are with what you've done all of your adult life. And when you're no longer doing that, you're not really sometimes even sure, well, who am I? Mm-hmm. I mean, what is, my, what is my life about? What does it even matter? And so in the next few weeks, we're going to be addressing, for the next five weeks, actually, we're going to be addressing that particular issue of the identity crisis, that question of who am I? And that's, 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 a, that's a good question, but there's another question that we're going to find in Exodus chapter 3 that has to be answered first in Moses' life and in our life is, first of all, we have to have the question answered, who are you? In other words, looking at God, when we can answer the question and understand who God is, then we are in a place where we can more accurately answer the question, who am I? Because since we are created in his image and that image has been marred by sin, we'll never, we'll never be able to really accurately answer the question, who am I? Until we have put in place the answer to the question, who are you? Who is God? In the classic text of a person who fell into an identity crisis at a point in his life is Moses and it's Exodus chapter three. You know, if you read Moses' story, uh, even preceding coming up to Exodus chapter three, you realize that Moses probably had as good a reason to go into an identity crisis as anybody who has ever lived. Here's just a summation of Moses' story up to the point where we come to Exodus chapter three. First of all, he was born, he was a Hebrew. You remember the story, his mother in, in Egypt there and put him in the basket and wound up being raised in Pharaoh's court. So he was born a Hebrew, they were slaves in Egypt at this time, but he was raised as royalty, he was raised as an Egyptian. And then he had to become a fugitive from Egypt because he defended one of the Hebrews. By this time he knew his heritage was Hebrew and so he, he killed a, 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 an Egyptian in order to protect a Hebrew and now he's having to flee to Midian and he's on the backside of Midian keeping his father-in-law's sheep. I mean, he went from being in Pharaoh's favor and in the court of Pharaoh to having to work for daddy-in-law. Now that's not a good thing. And he had to have been on the backside of Midian there asking the question, who in the world am I? Am I going to worship the 
Hebrew God? Am I going to worship the Egyptian gods? Am I one of royal uh, ancestry or am I one of slavery ancestry? Am I going to be keeping my daddy-in-law's sheep for the rest of my life? Or is there something bigger that needs to happen in my life? And so he asks the question first, who am I? But ultimately, God said, let's talk about who I am, first of all, before we get to that. So this week and next week, that's what we're going to be doing. And what we're going to do in these, in these uh, weeks ahead is we're going to be talking about three very important characteristics, aspects of the character and nature of God that every one of you need to get. And we're going to give you three big words, okay? So you can pull these out and you can, you can uh, amaze your friends, Okay. Uh, but no, if you can really, if you can understand these words and you can understand at least some meaning of these words, you will have a, a holistic view of who God is. And when someone says, well, who is this God? You can say, well, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipresent. How about that? Those are the three words we're going to give you. I wish you'd write them down in your Bible somewhere, and we're going to define those words because that is who God revealed himself to Moses to be. And that put Moses in this place where Moses then could get into a correct identity of himself. And the first one, we're going to spend just today on this first one. The first one is the phrase or the term that God is omnipotent. And I put in the margin there, he is sovereign. Now, sovereignty and omnipotence are technically two different terms, but they do flow out of each other. They are, if you will, kissing cousins. Now, for you Southern folks, that means that God is omnipotent. <laughs> okay. If you need that, you can remember it that way. He is omnipotent, but for the purposes of this morning, we're going to pronounce it omnipotent. Okay. Yes. And what that simply means is that God is all powerful. There is nothing that is beyond him. There is nothing he cannot do or accomplish. He never gets tuckered out. And when it says on the seventh day he rested, God didn't rest in creation because he was tuckered out. It was an expression of what he intended to be a part of the fabric, woven into the very fabric of all of creation. Everything needs to cease labor and needs to rest. And so God, because he is omnipotent, he never faces a situation, even if it's 2020, that sneaks up on him where he is stumped and where there is nothing that he is able to do. Now, when you put that with the word that he is sovereign as a kissing cousin of omnipotent, it means that, that God has a will and he is working all things, the scripture says, according to the counsel of his will. And there is nothing about his will that he cannot accomplish or that he will not accomplish. He is omnipotent. He determines what he wills, and then he directs all things toward that will and purpose. And he will accomplish it. Nothing is going to get in the way of the creator God accomplishing his purpose and his will. Now, let's look at the text this morning and how he communicated this to Moses. This is a very well-known text, but there are, a lot of there are a lot of intricacies that are in this text that we're going to show you this morning. And the truth is that what, it, what this means for us about God's omnipotence, because he reveals himself that way. And then we ask, like, well, what does that mean then for me? And the first one, Derek's going to take this one, is he is sovereign, therefore I can be secure. He is sovereign, I am secure. In other words, 
Because of his sovereignty, I don't have to worry about thwarting God's plan and purpose. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing that can thwart God's plan and, and purpose. In order to do that, in order to, to stand in the way of what God is trying to accomplish, I would either have to take God by surprise, and that would mean that God is not all-knowing, or it would mean that what was happening would be too much for God to handle, and that would mean He was not all-powerful. God's sovereignty says, His omnipotence says, there is nothing that can thwart His purpose. So, because He is sovereign, I can rest, you can rest in the security that we have knowing that we're not going to stand in the way of God and what He is trying to work out. Now, here we are in Exodus 3, but how do we get here? right? That's the big question. A lot has happened prior to this. If you've been in our life Bible studies, which is what we call our Sunday schools, uh, primarily through Zoom over this past year, we just finished a 40-week study in the book of Genesis. And Genesis unpacks a lot of things that are very pertinent to where we are in Exodus chapter 3. Of course, it begins with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. We get to Noah and the flood. You're familiar with that story. And then in chapter 12, we meet a really important individual named Abraham, the father of God's people, the great patriarch, the great receiver of God's covenant. And Abraham has uh, two sons, one of whom is passed on this patriarchal blessing, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. You've heard Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and anyone? No? <laughs> Joseph, the four patriarchs. I need to come to my Old Testament class next right. time I do that. So, 40 weeks in Genesis. It man, takes him a while to get out of the starting blocks. It does. It? We, we, just, we just moved right through it. That was fast, too. Um, Something interesting happens with Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel, and then the last part of, of Genesis kind of unfolds the story of one of Israel's sons, Joseph. Joseph, a lot of things happen to him. He's sold into slavery by his brothers, brothers, right, doing crazy brother things like <laughs> selling the other brother boys. into slavery, right. Um, <laughs> pushing each other out of pushing, a tree. Pushing them in out into holes. And so... Something, a lot of crazy things happen in his life. He eventually ends up as the second most powerful person in Egypt. This is kind of how Genesis ends. Joseph dies. Uh, Egypt and Israel are in great relationship with one another. Um, there's, there's a lot of friendship there. There's a lot, uh, uh, Egypt recognizes what Joseph has done for them. There's a large famine, and God works through Joseph to save them. And, and so everything is great at the end of Genesis, except for one thing. God promises in Genesis that Israel will end up in the promised land, which is the land of Canaan. Which ain't Egypt. Which is not Egypt, right. And so Genesis ends with this sort of real estate problem. They're in the wrong spot, all of them. They're wrong all location. in Egypt. So then we get to, and, and Joseph even knew this, by the way. Genesis 50, verse 25, says that he made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. In other words, like, hey, one day after I die, God is going to come. He's going to move you out of Egypt and back into the promised land. And here's what I want you to do. Grab a shovel, and I want you to dig me up, dig me up. <laughs> and take me with you. And I'm, you know the great thing about it is Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament tells us that when they left, they, did. they actually dug Joseph yeah. up and took his bones. They had his bones on their back in a They'd bag. Passing that down for centuries. Hey, guys, when we get out of here, we got to take Joe with us. Absolutely. Joe did not stay in Egypt. God said it. So that's obedience. It is. I don't know that I'd dig you up. I'm not going to be honest. You would never know. I would never know. You would never know. I so would, then I would spit on you from heaven. So then we we get to the beginning of Exodus, 
And things have changed. It says in Exodus 1.8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He did not recognize what Joseph had done for them. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And so Egypt changes, right? Pharaoh changes. They are no longer friendly with the Hebrews living amongst them. In fact, the new Pharaoh is very harsh. He begins to enslave them. He abuses them. He eventually orders all of the male babies in their population to be murdered, to be killed, to try to stop the growth of the Hebrew people. And this presents a big problem for Moses because Moses is a baby, and he's a male baby. So he fits into this really bad category. Uh, But his mother, uh, through the sovereignty of God, fashions this little basket and floats him down the river to a place where Pharaoh's daughter would often bathe. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and and decides to take him in as her own. And so Moses is now being cared for in the royal home of Pharaoh. Even more than that, Moses' mother comes and volunteers to be the nanny of Pharaoh's daughter. So he's even being raised by his own biological mother. This looks like somebody is guiding this process. It does. It doesn't seem random. It might be the omnipotent It doesn't seem random at all. Uh, Of course, because of this, Moses is an interesting character. He's educated in Egypt. He understands Egyptian culture, food, language. But he's also being raised by his mom, so he he knows Hebrew. He has a a passion and a love for his Hebrew people. And and so this sets up the next kind of big issue in Moses' life. Moses is out one day taking an afternoon Egyptian stroll, and he notices an Egyptian guard being rather abusive to one of the Hebrew slaves. And it says he looks one way and then looks another way to see if there's anyone watching. And Mo does what any normal, level-headed Hebrew would do. He murders the guy. (laughs) And hides his body so that no one will find him. Well, maybe he strikes him and the dude didn't make it through. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. Maybe maybe he fell. Maybe it was the fell that killed him. Yeah. He could have had a heart condition or something. Maybe he had coronavirus. I mean, who knows? He could have. If he tested positive, it was going to go down as a virus death anyway. So, So... are we, are we off the rails this morning? <laughs> just about, I'm just sitting here thinking it took you 40 weeks to do what you just did in 10 minutes. You could have gotten the Cliff could've, Notes version of Genesis. Could have been one handout. Yeah, could have been could've one been. handout. So, so Moses is now a wanted fugitive. He's a murderer. He flees into the wilderness. He meets a wilderness girl and marries her. Uh, and her dad happens to be a sheep herder, and so, as James said, he is now tending his father-in-law's sheep. His name and is Jethro, wasn't it? Jethro. Yeah. yeah. He was not um, on the Beverly Hillbillies. No. Um, so this picks up Exodus 3. This is where we, we begin in our text. Moses is in the middle of nowhere. He's a wanted fugitive. He is, is uh, you know, been through the ringer in his very short lifetime, and God comes to him and begins to speak with him. Now, just before we get to that, let me ask you, do you think that Moses maybe had a bit of an identity crisis? <laughs> I mean, is that, is, right? I mean, he's born a Hebrew slave, raises Pharaoh's son, hiding as a fugitive, working as a… Sh- do you think he, like, sits at night and looks up at the stars and just thinks, what I? the heck happened? That he contemplates his navel and yeah. says, who am I? What happened? How, how did I get here? <laughs> who am I? Do you think he was maybe confused a little bit? Now, let me ask you another question. You think God was confused? Mm. You think God showed up in Egypt and was like, hey, where's Moses at? Where's Mo? He's going to mess up my plan. I'm trying to accomplish something here, and he's not even here. Right? I really thought he'd be here. I guess I'm not going to be able to do what I wanted to do now. No. 
That's not at all. God is sovereignly working out his plan in spite of all of these things. He knew exactly what kind of man he wanted Moses to be. He's behind the scenes working out the details. Now, listen, whenever we, we talk about the omnipotence of God or the sovereignty of God, there are a lot of strange ideas that, that come up from this, right? Because what happens is we ask the question, how can God both be sovereign over all things and yet still have given man free will to choose what he will do on his day-to-day life. And, and so we can't really wrap pop, our mind pop around Pop goes that can of worms. Right. It, it, it's too much for us. So here's what happens. Usually, we go to one of two extremes. This is what human nature does. Either fly to one side or fly to the other. So the first side says, God won't intervene in any way. Right? He's given us total free will. He has left it up to us to make the right choices. <laughs> and we've done such a wonderful right, job. Right, right. <laughs> This is why you need to go to Sunday school, children, so you learn to make the right choices so that everything works out. Well, listen, who can make the right choices? No one. Right. Jesus. Jesus and then no one, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. Jesus and then no one. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, okay? So it sounds like we need some intervention at this point. We, we are incapable of making the right choice. But then on the other hand, you have folks who will go, well, God is sovereign and he causes all things. We're just, we're just pl- puppets in his, his little show, right? So what happens is a tragedy will strike, a drunk driver will hit someone and kill someone, and, and someone in this camp will go, well, but yeah, God has a purpose for this. God caused this because there's a reason behind it. Now, God does have a purpose in that, right? But it wasn't the drunk driver running a red light. The sovereignty of God does not mean, and I want you to hear this, this is a big mm. distinction. The sovereignty of God does not mean that God causes all things to happen. Amen. What it means is that he causes all things to work together for his purpose. Is that a Bible verse? It seems like it is. I think it is. Romans 8.28, as a matter of fact, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is how sovereignty and free will collide together, intersect what, with what one another. What is that good? Does that, that means, oh, well, then life's going to be easy for me. Right, uh, right. Look at the context. The good is God's purpose. That's right. He works all things with us that he may accomplish his, his purpose. purpose. That's the good. That's the only thing that really matters. That is absolutely God right. accomplishing his purpose. And he says, I will do that. So listen, God has a plan and a purpose. You need to understand this. He will accomplish his plan and purpose regardless of my decisions and regardless of your decisions. Now listen, if you and I live by faith and we live our lives according to this, that plan and purpose becomes a lot less complicated, Right? It's a little bit easier. But was, so hear me out. Was God's plan and purpose for all of those babies in Egypt to die? No. Was his plan for Moses in a fit of rage to strike an Egyptian such that he would die? No. But did any of those things that were clearly sin stop God's plan and purpose from happening? Nope. No. His plan and purpose will come to pass. Why? Because he is sovereign, because he is omnipotent. Now, what does that mean for us? It means as children of God, believers in Christ, we are secure. I can make wrong choices. Anyone made wrong choices this year? It's the third day, right? We can make wrong choices, I can mess things up, and I'm not going to thwart God's plan. It may make things messy for myself, 
It may make things messy for you. It may bring about extra struggle, but we can be secure in our relationship knowing that nothing we do stands in the way of God. This is why Paul says, Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even my own dumb choices can separate me. He is sovereign. That's good. I am secure. Secondly, I, I love the, the couple of things. Let me visit a couple yeah, of things. Yeah, please, please. You said that God said to Moses, we're going to have an intervention. Mm-hmm. So he was basically saying to Moses, Moses, pack your bags. You're going to rehab. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all going to get together and we're going to have an intervention have an here intervention. and we're going to get you back on the track. Yeah. And, and, and the, the People say, well, golly, then that, if we believe that, then that just sets us free to just do all the stupid stuff we want. No, nope. it doesn't. What it sets me free to do is to seek Him and know that if I do stupid stuff, His purpose is not going to be thwarted. That's right. He is going to accomplish His purpose. Right. Moses did a few stupid things. That's right. Most of you have done a few stupid things. I know Derek has. Tons, I never have. Tons of stupid things. But yet I have this security in Him that I cannot do anything that is going to thwart his purpose. And because that is the good. That's right. That's the good that he brings about through all things to accomplish his purpose. And because he is omnipotent, that leads to the second part of it, that not only am I secure, but I am set apart for that purpose. He intends, he will make me a part of that purpose. Now, now get this, folks. When God calls us to himself, for us, when he calls us to himself by faith in Jesus Christ, he not only secures us in that purpose, but he sets us apart for that purpose purpose. Everything about my life is to be, when I become his child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, God's purpose is to become mine. His, my will is to be a part of the accomplishment of his will. So, and he accomplishes his will folks through those whom he secures. He accomplishes his will through those whom he secures. He has secured Moses. He is going to use Moses, and Moses can't do anything stupid enough to thwart that use of Moses' life. Now, that doesn't set me free to just be stupid. I don't have any, I don't have to be set free to do that. I'm going to do that anyway. It sets me free to be secure in this relationship that I have with my Heavenly Father, for he has ordained that I will be a part of his purpose. Do you get this? So here was Moses, okay? He was keeping sheep. In verse 2, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and the bush wasn't consumed. This is chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 2. Now, if you've ever been in a wilderness area or out in, you know, a desert area, a bush fire is really not all that unusual, okay? I mean, bushfires happen for a lot of different reasons. The only thing strange about a bushfire in the wilderness is when the bush doesn't burn up. Now, that's, that's strange. So it got Moe's attention, okay? It just kept burning, burning, burning. He said, that bush is not burning up. And so verse 3 says, Moses says, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight. Now, I submit to you this morning that Moses must have attended Thai church. Because that's Thai church it is. lingo. It is. What a marvelous sight. 
I must turn aside to see this marvelous sight. That's how they talk in Thai church. I'm going to say that today when the Cowboys are about to win and going to the playoffs. I'm going to say, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight. Marvelous sight as I look upon the TV. So, put into the modern day vernacular, we might say in the non Thai church, we might tell you, Whoa, awesome! I got to go check this thing out. And that's what Moses does. He turns aside and the Lord says, Moses, Moses. Now, let me help you understand what God is doing here. This is, in essence, God asking Moses a question. And that question is, Moses, where are you? Mm -hmm. In fact, that's exactly the way that Moses understood this, Moses, Moses, because he says, well, here I am. Here I am. So he understood that God speaking out to him was going, Moses, where are you? Just exactly as God did with Adam in the garden after sin, right? Yep. It says that God came to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? Do you think for a moment that the creator God did not know physically, (laughs) residentially where Adam was? He wanted Adam to think about this thing for a moment. He's wanting Moses to, Moses, Moses, well, here am I. They were both in the wrong place. Now get this. God knew where Moses was, and that wasn't where Moses needed to be. Moses was in the wrong place. Adam, God knew where Adam was. Adam wasn't where Moses, where where he should have been. Adam was in sin. That wasn't where he should have been. Where are you, Adam? Moses was in Sinai. That wasn't where he should have been. But notice, the Lord begins with this idea of where are you before he goes to ultimately this discussion about purpose. So you see, at this time, and I want to make the practical application here for a moment, the rest of my time. At this particular time, Moses had the same problem that we tend to have very often in our lives. We often do the very thing that Moses did. We put ourselves into the wrong place. That doesn't thwart God's purpose, but it causes us all kinds of problems. And so God comes to us periodically and says, where are you? Moses knew where he was geographically, but Moses was a bit confused about why he was even there and who he was at this particular point in his life. It became for Moses, and it does become, this question becomes like a vicious circle for us. We wonder who we are, and so we start looking for that answer in all the wrong places. That sounds like a song, doesn't it? It does. Start looking for the answer in all the wrong places. We get into the wrong places, and then situations are there cause us further to question who we are, and so we look in another place, and we question even deeper who we are, and it becomes this vicious cycle in our lives of wondering, trying to figure out who we are, this existential question, but looking always in a physical or situational place. And here's what we need to learn. And Moses ultimately came to this in Exodus 3 because it carried him through doing what God wanted him to do for the rest of his life. We need to learn that where we are, get this, has nothing to do with who we are. Mm. Where you are has nothing to do with who you are. And if you are looking for who you are in where you are, you will always be confused. Are you confused? Now think about that. If you're looking to discover who you are by where you are, you will never answer the question really of who you are. Moses was in Egypt 
and he was confused. He's raised as, a, as an Egyptian, but he's a Hebrew. What am I? Who am I in Egypt? He flees to Midian, and he's still confused. Running to Midian didn't answer the question for him. Am I Egyptian? Am I Hebrew? Do I worship Egyptian gods? Do I worship the one true God? Am I a shepherd, or am I for a greater, more special purpose? So changing his geographical location did nothing for Moses to answer this question, who am I? And it never does. It never does. Changing Geographical location, changing your situation never helps clarify your purpose. It just clouds it even more. We call it around here, we call it in recovery circles, we call it seeking a geographical fix. Yep. Folks, geographical fixes never work. People are always looking for an answer to questions in life by changing their situation. By changing their, if you will, their geographical location. We think, we get in a tough place in our lives, and we think that if we can just change locations, or we can change our situation, then our confusion and our problems are going to go away. And they never do. Nope. And here's why. Because the real problem Moses had is the same problem we have. The problem wasn't outside of Moses. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is me. That's right. So wherever I go. There you are. There I am. Thank you. You're welcome. You are genius. (laughs) Set me up. That was a softball. (laughs) And if the problem primarily, and I'm not negating that there are problems outside of us, but the vast majority of our stuff, folks, is not outside of us. It's inside of us. And if the problem is really in me, then wherever I go, I take that problem with me. I can get a different job. I still am I am me. I can get a different spouse. I'm still an idiot. Yep. I can go to a different church. Is that going to solve my problems? No, because 98% of the problems are internal. And every one of those times we seek that geographical fix after the honeymoon is over in the new relationship or the new job or the new church or whatever it is, we ultimately discover that the only thing that has changed is our GPS coordinates. The problem hasn't been solved because the main part of the problem I struggled with wasn't outside of me. It was inside of me. There may have been problems outside of me, but the real problem with me is how I handle that problem. And if I handle problems wrongly, then I can change my location, and I'm, I'm still the problem because there's going to be problems everywhere around me. That's why St. Michael of Jackson once said, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> That was not in the notes. That was not in the manuscript. That was divinely inspired. inspired. Oh, man, that is so great. I love Mm. teaching with someone half my age. (laughs) It reminds me of how wise I am. Oh, right. (laughs) Right. Okay, so I need to let him wrap this up in a moment. So let's, (laughs) let's talk for just a moment, okay? We get this idea. Moses has changed locations, okay? He's gone from Egypt to Midian. He still doesn't know what's up with my life. And so Moses, God says, Moses, where are you? And we're going to get to the moment in a moment where Moses is going to ask God, well, who are you? Okay? But right now, it's, it's, this, it's this question, why do we do this? Okay, well, let's talk about some of the places that we like to look 
in order to fix the situation. Sometimes it's a position. Sometimes we, we think that if I can be the CEO, if I can be the top dog, king of the hill, man in charge, chairman of the board, ship's master, boss, captain, el jefe, el primo, I had to look at my notes to do that, everything would be better in my life. But then you get there, and it's not better. You just have more money, maybe, and more responsibility to be stupid with. Position is not going to change and not going to answer who you are. Sometimes we go to performance. If I can just be the best, if I can be valedictorian, if I can win the race, be the best singer, be the top salesman in sports, mm -hmm. if I can win the Masters or the Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup or the World Series, it's going to be okay. Maybe you remember, it's been a while. Oh, don't when, bring it up. When the Texas Rangers oh. actually got into the World Series. Do you remember that? Like a nightmare. That was 2010 and 11. Two years in a row actually got into the World Series. We got to go that Twice, first year. Yeah. yeah, didn't get to go in the 2011. It was the 2011 series that ESPN said was the greatest World Series in history of baseball. Mm -hmm. I think he probably was over must have been, the must, case. Have been, must have been Cardinals fans is all I'm saying. Well, yeah, it was, it was the Rangers and the Cardinals, okay? Went to game seven, folks. That really doesn't happen all that often in a World World Series stuff. So that's one of the reasons why. It was just back and forth. In fact, after the sixth game, the series was tied three and three. You remember that? I'm reliving this right now. Horribly. And Ron Washington was the manager mm -hmm. of the Rangers. And people were saying Ron Washington is the best manager in baseball. He's the best manager. The Rangers, in fact, after game six, when we came back and won the game, it was one of those, you know, scary deals, came back and tied it up three to three to go to game seven. I mean, people were high five in Ron Washington. He was signing autographs. He was the best thing since sliced bread. And then when we lost game seven, immediately throw the bomb out. He's the worst manager that's ever managed in baseball. Everybody started cutting and pasting all the decisions he made oh, in yeah. game seven and blamed him for the Rangers not winning the World Series. As long as performance is the goal for you to answer this question of security within yourself, performance is never going to be enough. Nope. It's never going to be enough for you because they're always going to come, become those downtimes. It's never going to be enough for others. If you just need the applause of others by your performance, well, you're going to get it while you're doing well. But what when you trip, it's going to be gone. And who am I? It didn't work for Moses either. After Moses left us, you remember, we're going to get into this a little bit later uh, in the end of the book of Exodus. One day, Moses is leading the Hebrew children out of bondage through the... The, the Red Sea, right? I mean, he is the catch me out. I mean, this Mo, he is some kind of guy. Everybody's singing his praises. A few days later, they're complaining about the menu. What about the menu? Moses, you lead us out here to die? I mean, performance is never going to get it. Nope. Performance is never going to accurately answer that question. Sometimes we go to popularity. Yep. If I can just get everyone to like me, to be pleased with me, to be happy with me. I'll be okay. I'll be all better. So I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to say I'm happy, healthy, and by darn, I'm a good person and people like me. Mm. And then someone comes along who doesn't like you. And who are you? Who am I? 
possessions. If I can get lots of stuff, a bigger house, a nicer car, more money, on and on, that'll do it. Then the economy tanks, the market crashes, the bank goes belly up, the house burns. <laughs> Sound like 2020. 2020, yeah. <laughs> so bad. You see, folks, defining who we are by where we are never gets it. Whether where we are is a physical location, it's a different relationship, or if it's just a different situation that we think is going to make us happy, that's going to fulfill us where we can look in the mirror and go, I feel good about who I am in the plan and the purpose of God. It's never going to happen. So Moses is in the same boat. Folks, we can, he can relate to us, or better still, we can relate to him. Are you getting this? So the question is, God looks at you this morning and says, Derek? Derek? Yeah, yes, here I am. You're an idiot. Oh, a amen. But that's okay, because I, okay, I work well with idiots. <laughs> Praise I've been God. doing it a long time. And now Derek's going to take us in to the finish. So, so when we're talking about identity then, if, if it's not position, if it's not performance, if it's not popularity, it's not possessions, then what is it? What is it that defines me? And what we're going to find out is that it's actually purpose. It's God's plan and purpose for our lives. And what I want to do for the, the ending part of this message is just kind of break down three aspects of God's actions with regard to purpose, holiness. Uh, we'll get practical here, but, but I want you to understand some theology behind this as well, because this is really important that you get this, that you understand the operation of God, not only as He stands alone, but in our lives as well. I want to talk about the holiness of God, because what we're talking about here is God's omnipotence, His purpose, and yet He has to bring us into His purpose, and God is holy, and we are not. That's really the first point, that God is, by definition, set apart, okay? Uh, holiness really just means set apart from sin. It's a, it's a big theological word. Whenever we talk about holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, we're just saying set apart, set apart, set apart is the Lord God Almighty. In the Almighty. Old Testament, that's the, how, how the word was used. When God said set this apart, set this me, apart. he meant declare it holy. Absolutely. Declare it holy to remove it. So you have sin in this general pile, and you're going to take something from that and set it apart, away from, separate from that sin. That is to be holy. Now, in, in Exodus 3, look at verses 4 and 5. It says, when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, the question is, what makes the ground holy? Isn't this just dirt? This is just Midian. Why is this place holy? The answer is because God was on it. That's right. It was holy by extension because God was on it. Now, again, this means that the ground then, the very ground he was standing on, is set apart from sin. And so I want you to understand a very basic truth. This is foundational to the, the Christian faith at large. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. You need to understand this. It's the foundation of the gospel. Sin separates us from him. This is why no one can approach him. He is holy. He is set apart from sin. We are sinners, and this presents a problem for us. If we want to have fellowship with God, if we are going to come to God, then we cannot come on our own terms because he is set apart and we are not. We ourselves are sinners. We have no hope unless, second point, God not only is set apart, but God sets apart. Specifically, us. Notice what he says. Take your sandals off. Now again, 
Why? Why is he asking him to take his sandals off? Because you're on holy ground. The very sandals you wear are not worthy to be on the ground that I stand on because I am holy. I am set apart. Now, why does that matter? Specifically, why do the sandals matter? Why does he ask that? The, the basic answer is this, because, because God said so. <laughs> I mean, that, that's really, uh, it, God himself is holy. He's the one who sets the standard for holiness. If he tells you, uh, you're wearing sandals, take them off, you take your sandals off. Well, that's, the sandals kind of represent the same thing Sam does. The sandals separated Moses' feet from, from the, ground. the holy right. ground. Yeah. So remove them. But this is, but this is, but this is for anything. God Mm -hmm. sets the standard. If he says, hey, you're wearing a purple polka dotted jacket, take it off. You take the purple polka dotted jacket off, (laughs) right? Now, I don't own one of those, but I'm just saying. Glad I didn't wear mine. Whatever. Exactly. So removing sandals do have some history behind it. This is what you would do when you come into the presence of royalty. It was a sign of respect. So Moses taking his sandals off to approach God, really, he's confessing two things. He's admitting two things when he does this. He's admitting the holiness of God, and he's admitting the unholiness of himself in God's Mm -hmm. presence. He is saying, you are holy and I am not. It was an act of submission. It was an act of confession. He's confessing, God decides how I approach him, and because I am sinful and he is holy, I'm going to submit myself to that. That was true then. It is true today. God sets the standard for how we are to approach him. We have to agree on this, folks. This is an essential doctrine of our faith. We cannot disagree on this. We are at God's mercy. He determines how we approach Him and not the other way around. It is so important for you to get that. But but I want you to get this anyways, because we're going to talk here in a moment about freedom and choice and all that stuff. And really, the, the reality is, as much as we are at the mercy of God to determine how we approach Him, we are always at the mercy of something. We are never arbiters of our own faith. Mm-hmm. I want you to understand this. Either, let me give you a truth, a way to think about this. Either sin will set you apart from God, or God will set you apart from sin. You're at the mercy of both. Mm-hmm. You have no real choice in the matter. Either sin will set you apart from God, and you will have no fellowship with Him, or by God's mercy, He will set, set you apart from sin, and you will be made holy. Can I throw something in here? Please. <laughs> I asked. At least I asked permission. Yeah. Uh, now think about that, folks. It's exactly what God did in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because our sin separates us. Yeah. So Jesus says, you've got to take your sandals off. Yeah. You can't wear your sandals into the presence of God. And in that illustration, Jesus is the way. And we say, but, but, but I want to go another way. I want to do good works. And Jesus said, no. This is how you come. God said, Moses, take those off. You cannot be in my presence wearing those sandals. That's right. So God defines how we come. He did for Moses. He did all through the old covenant. He has now for us. We must come through Jesus Christ because it is only Jesus that can remove those sandals. Now, I want you to understand this, though. This is important for you. You, you live, we live in a culture that wants you to believe otherwise. Mm-hmm. It wants you to believe that you are the center of your own universe, that you get to decide what is best for you, what is right for you. You are your own moral arbiter. You get to decide the direction that you're going to go and, and what is not, maybe not best for everyone else, but what's best for you. What works for you is fine. What's your truth? Yeah, your truth. It's all subjective. This is a part of our Western identity, sort of individualism. And, and I want to give you an example as Americans that maybe will help you understand this a little bit better. We as Americans hold our rights and our freedom as the highest value 
in our American identity. Now, let me ask you a question. Where do we get those freedoms and rights from? Where do we derive those from? A document. Yeah, the, the Constitution specifically. This is why this is such an important document to us. It's so valuable. It lays out the freedoms and rights that we have as Americans. In America, then, we are only as free as the Constitution dictates. In other words, I cannot, as an American, run around and rob a bank and kill someone and go, I'm free! Right? That's not a freedom I'm granted by the Constitution. I am, and so freedom, then, is defined, it is framed, it is bound by the Constitution. God's kingdom is similar. We are free in Christ, right? We talk about this all the time, freedom in Christ, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So we have freedom, but freedom, folks, is not without definition. And where do we get that definition from? The Scriptures, the Bible, our sort of spiritual constitution. So the U.S. Constitution dictates my American freedoms. The Scripture dictates my Christian freedoms. Are you following me so far? Now, here's the difference major difference. In God's kingdom, you are no longer living in a democracy. You are in a theocracy. So whereas in the we United States, vote, no, in exactly. In the United States, we the people set the standards as dictated in the Constitution. We the people do not set the standards for how we approach God. God sets this standard by his own standards, and he alone is the one who does this. And how does he tell us that we should approach him? How do we take our sandals off, proverbially speaking, as James said, through faith and trust in the one true way, Jesus I'm sorry, Christ. I've stole your thunder. That's okay. That's okay. By confessing his burial or death, burial, and resurrection. These are God's terms. It's not by being a good person. It's not by being a, a moral person or, or whatever standard that you want to have. It is by faith and faith alone. That is how God sets us apart. That is how he forgives us. That is how he washes us clean and brings us into his presence such that we are set apart with him. Remember the definition of faith that I've been teaching you for 37 years? Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is not somehow changing God's word. Faith is taking God at his word. What did Moses do at the bush? He took God, God at, his, at word. his word. He took his sandals off. What, how do we have faith in Jesus Christ? We take God at his word. He has told us this is the perfect sacrifice. This is the only way. Yep. That's what faith is. It's acting out. Moses demonstrated it. God gave us his word so that we may demonstrate faith by taking him at his, his word. word. So God is set apart. God sets us apart, and then finally, this is where it gets really practical, He calls me to live a life set apart. So in other words, He doesn't just set me apart from sin and go, ta-da, I'm done. Right? There's more to the story. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who has called you holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he doesn't set us apart for nothing. He doesn't wash us and just send us on our way. He tells us, now that you've been set apart, live like it. That's right. He doesn't just save us, in other words. He sanctifies us. These are another, another theological mm -hmm. term. Uh, but I want you to understand the theology here. When God sets me apart, that is a moment. It is an event. It is salvation. That, this is the moment I am born again, that I become a Christian. And listen, folks, it is binding for eternity. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So when God saves, it is a moment, it is an event, and it is final. There is nothing else that can happen after that. 
But what happens after that? What does he call us to after that? He calls us to live a life set apart. That's the sanctifying process where he begins to form us into more and more of the image of his son. Again, where do I learn how to live a life set apart? His word. The scripture, our spiritual constitution. So get this, God is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And because he is holy, he is able to set the standard of holiness And not only does he set the standard of holiness, he sets me apart to holiness, and then he gives me everything I need in the Scriptures to live out that holiness in my life. He's the author of the whole process. You see, you are learning right now what Moses learned in Exodus chapter 3, that because God is sovereign, he could be secure. He had a litany of mistakes in his life, and God was still going to accomplish his purpose in his life, even in spite of those sins. But more than that, he will use me to accomplish his purpose because he also sets me apart for it. Let me just say this as we close. We, we live right now in a time where there has, there has never been more acceptance to choose any sort of identity you want for yourself, and yet, simultaneously, we are in the midst of perhaps the largest identity crisis we've ever faced. Kind of odd. More options than we've ever had, more confusion than there's ever been. Lots of uncertainty, lots of division, and, and here's the first Sunday of the year it's a fresh new year, and you're thinking about all those failures and all that confusion and all the what-ifs and, and what-abouts from last year, and, and here's the, the central thing that I want you to get, that I want you to get clarity on, whether you're here or at home online. It is that knowing God's identity, that He is, at least for this week, omnipotent. We'll talk about what else He is next week, but He is omnipotent. He is sovereign. If you will learn His identity His identity will define mine and yours as well. And then you will find security and you will find yourself being a part of a grander plan and purpose than you could ever conjure on your own. And that, folks, will give you that deep sense of relief that everyone is looking for, but no one can find apart from Jesus. And folks, get this. God did not cause COVID-19. No. But COVID-19 will not thwart his purpose. No. As a matter of fact, he'll use it. He is going to use this pandemic, this tragedy. You think in our culture, folks, in my lifetime, there has never been a time when America needs the gospel more. Ever. When people, so many people who don't know the Lord have built their lives up on so many things that 2020 has stripped away their freedom their job, their business, their families, all of these things that people have built their identity upon, all of a sudden in 2020, it has been taken away. And they're asking, who am I? That's right. And the gospel says, well, this is who you are. You're a creation of God, and he wants to bring you back to himself, and he's provided that way in Jesus Christ. You need to know him, and you will be secure in who you are. Folks, this is how the sovereign God works. He didn't cause Moses to kill that guy. But he used it. He didn't cause COVID-19, whatever that is, COVID-19. But folks, if we will rise to the purpose, if we will rise to the cause, our nation is ripe for the gospel of Jesus Christ more so than it ever has been in the next coming years ahead of us. This is where we need to focus. Everyone is worried about the church shrinking and the numbers not coming back. I'm convinced if God's people rise to the occasion, the church will be bigger than it's ever been. Because we need it. We need the gospel. The community needs the gospel. 
They need Jesus. So the question is, uh, God is asking, Moses, Moses, yeah. my people, where are you? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that your word, even though this experience of Moses is so far behind us, is so practical even to, for today. Your word is alive. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces. It's pierced us today. And we're no different than Moses. We're confused. But you aren't. We're helpless. But you aren't. Mm. We don't know who we are. But you do. Mm. Turn our face toward you, Father, in this particular time. Call your people, Lord, to find their hope and security only in you. Our nation needs it. Our nation needs us. Our nation needs you. And individuals who make up the population of this nation are looking around and going, who in the world am I? And who is God? And as your people, we, we have that answer. So we pray for a great harvest of the kingdom over the coming years as a result of this incredible tragedy that has happened in this fallen world, that you take it and you mold it and you make it like a potter molds the clay into your purpose. We pray it in Jesus' name. <coughs> Amen. 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 God bless you.